That is Simply Focus with Elvi Chani and Dominic Gilda. Welcome back everyone to the Simply Focus podcast, your podcast for life in joy and ease. My name is Elfi Czerny. And I'm Dominic Gouda. Hi there. We are your hosts of today's episode and are super excited to finally be here in Canada on Vancouver Island and sit in the beautiful property and office of Janet Bevelas. Yeah, hi Jen. Hi. hi. You know that because we've been here for a couple of days that you've influenced us with your work very much. And it started when we read Pragmatics of Human Communication. And uh, it's even more now with the microanalysis that you do. It's really important and interesting topic for us. And our listeners might remember the listening podcast that we did. And there we integrated the T-Count study, the difference listening makes uh, for the storyteller. So today we are super excited to be here with you and to talk about the action is in the interaction, which you, I think you're a, a human example of embracing this throughout your whole life, just seeing you interacting with people, with animals, with, well, with nature is, is heart touching. And we're very much looking forward to figure out some wisdom or having you share some of your wisdom with us today. Yeah, microanalysis of face-to-face -face dialogue. We will come to that later. But mm -hmm. first, we're really interested because you have been in touch with Solution Focus for such a long time. What is fascinating you about Solution Focus? There's several things that got me really interested enough. Uh, partly is the people you work with, which are great. But I came from the same roots as in Sue and Steve. That we were all at the MRI about the same time, and all of us had John Weakland as a mentor. And that's, if you'd have to know the relationship to know how important that bond is. I must probably cross paths with them during the time they were there. I was already in Canada, but I went back a lot. We all seem to vaguely remember we saw each other. So you uh, agreed in the story that yes, you we must agreed. Have met then. <laughs> what, it worked better than all the other stories. <laughs> like we ignored each other for yeah. the whole time. So that was an important thing. One of the things that falls in that, which was really important too, is the interest in language. Most therapies aren't. Not that I know a lot about mm. other therapies, but they just they don't interest in language. They're interested in minds. And it's been a tradition, again, from the MRI and uh, the brief therapy, that shaping your language carefully and using it as a tool. My metaphor is that it's the only tool you carry into a therapy session. Mm. And to be careless with it is like a surgeon who goes in and is careless with his mm. tools. <laughs> We wouldn't like that. And so it's principally the interest in language and in a really close look at language, which they were interested in doing, not just superficially glossing the language. The last thing I've mentioned to you, it's ethical. Mm -hmm. I think it's unethical to make up things in people's head and diagnoses for which you have nothing but circular evidence. It's a strong statement, but it's true. <laughs> and I got tired of seeing students come in with a real-life problem, and they go to see counseling and come out with three problems, mm -hmm. uh, their childhood and their parents and the one they came in with. And mm -hmm. it's not a right kind of thing to come out more with more of. So I think it's more ethical to deal with what the capacities people already have and not deny those, not submerge them and go with what works. Mm, yeah. 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 And your your whole life has been in kind of interaction. Mm -hmm. Um mm. Uh, on our RV we have the action is in the interaction. Mm -hmm. I do microanalysis of face-to-face -face mm -hmm. dialogue. What fascinates you about that topic? <laughs> what couldn't fascinate you about it? <laughs> it's, it's, it, I think we come 
with interest. If we're really lucky, we find the interest. Like some people, my analogy is musicians. And some people want to be drummers and they have a really good sense of rhythm. And other people want to be violinists or singers. And, and the best thing you can do is to follow that. And for me, I've always seen interaction. I was, this is later, in, but I was at uh, Beachcombing with a biologist who's a taxonomist and really good, he, very good on classifications and specialties. And we happened to see two little crabs that were going around a rock, and he was trying to classify them, and I was looking at how they interacted. <laughs> and I was just, so we described completely different things. If you'd ask us what we saw, he would say, I saw one of these. And I said, I saw this most interesting tag game between the two crabs. It's just what I do. It's so bad that I'm not good at recognizing faces because I'm paying attention to interaction. So it's embarrassing sometimes that I won't, <laughs> in, I won't recognize someone completely if I don't know them well until we interact. So it's kind of what you focus on, you see, and you make yeah, bigger yeah, and yeah, you kind of yeah, yeah. Can see that in very detail. Yeah, and I was talking to you the other day about a schema, mm. which is a, actually a cognitive term for developing a template for what you can see and then you see more of it. So if you have an interest in face-to-face -face dialogue and you start looking at it a lot, which I'm privileged to do, then you see more things. Mm -hmm. Just as if you don't know anything about birds, you don't see any, but then somebody teaches you about birds and they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, so it builds on itself. That's true. Yeah. Your fascination for communication yeah. and for interaction in communication yeah. is a very long-lasting one. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm just super curious what helped you staying mm -hmm. curious about it and mm -hmm. unfolding and demystify all these things oh. around communication. Okay. I'll tell you my first memory. And as Otto Rank said, it's not really probably your first memory. It's the one you devoted some effort to remember. <laughs> so it, it, don't take it as truth. <laughs> But it was that I was about three years old in a snowsuit and it was the first time I'd been in snow. And so I was walking along with my mother and there was a bank of snow on the side. And I said, what does snow feel like? And she said, it's cold, don't touch it. So, of course, I took off my glove and shoved my hand in the snowbank. <laughs> I see that as the beginning of my life as a scientist. I think my family saw it otherwise. <laughs> But, yeah, I think that there's this general idea I want to know about something. And a lot of people, I mean, kids have that, I think, maybe get suppressed or they do something else. But I think a lot of it is just I'm dying to know about it. And I want to see it myself very closely. And that it happened that what I wanted to see a lot had to do with language and words and how people interact. Yeah, you yeah. shared this beautiful story that with eight years you wanted to write this amazing poem. <laughs> and um... Yeah, I was trying. Yeah, writing helped. Because being, uh, being a good writer is part of being interested in language. Yeah, and I was remembering the other day that I attempted an epic poem at the age of eight, which was, I think I got like four lines down. But, you know, it was a good effort. Well, it's amazing <laughs> with eight years to write yeah, an epic yeah. poem with four Or lines. One, one <laughs> I guess epic isn't quite the right word, is it? <laughs> a mini epic poem, a wannabe epic poem, yeah. yeah. It was trite dramatic in my family because my brother was and my father were very mechanically and engineering oriented. Uh, so they saw things differently too. And you realize that you're, again, you're looking at the mm. same thing, but you see different things in it. Mm. And mine was always people. Mm. Yeah. Your 
focus were always people and what you saw were mm. interactions. Yeah. So back when you studied psychology, I think there were a lot of inner concepts and not so much the in-between and the interaction. So well, how did you deal with that in your studies? And I'm, I mean, I'm really happy to see that yeah. you kept yeah. on going yeah. and seeing the interactions yeah. instead of like all these inner concepts. Yeah. So what, what helped you yeah. to stay with it and then really mm. to start your career as a scientist with mm -hmm. that? It's several questions. I was deciding between English and creative writing and psychology. And I chose psychology because of the science aspect, because I, I like that discipline, that mental discipline. But, you know, we talk about my seeing interaction, but I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't have any way of describing it or talking about it and didn't know people, other people didn't talk as if they saw it all the time. I wasn't, didn't bother me, but it was just there. And how what I did about it majoring in psychology is mostly being incredibly bored. Because <laughs> at the time, psychology was all stimulus response applied to everything. And you see, go to class and it was the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. But one time, one term, I was at Stanford, there was a visiting professor who was a psychiatrist who taught the adolescent psychology course. And he did really interesting things like having us read plays and novels and things and looking at the interaction in them. And he also assigned an article by Don Jackson. I think it's called Guilt and the Control of Pleasure in the Schizoid Personality. Not a promising title. And it's really a terrible article. But What he described made it clear there were other people in the patient's life and that they mattered, that it was suddenly as if the focus in a camera zoomed out and caught two people. And it was a bolt of sunlight. <laughs> My recreated memory of sitting in the dusky, darky part of the library where this assigned reading was. <laughs> and then there was a bolt of sun during that. It has several floors, so they can't be true that there was sunshine coming through. But it really was like, oh my gosh. Somebody else sees it and puts it into words. Mm -hmm. And then so a couple of years later, when I saw that there was a job at that place of which Jackson was the director, I took it rather than much better paying work. It mm -hmm. would have been more prestigious. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that started it because I was around a whole bunch of people who saw mm -hmm. what I saw. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so tell us more about what you see when you really look at face-to-face -face dialogue mm -hmm. and moment-by-moment -moment kind of yeah, microanalysis, yeah, what do you yeah. see differently than others? No, it's, you don't see all of it, but I'm like focusing on one thing and saying I'm interested in, for example, entrainment, which is when we start using the same word, even though they're better words, but we use the same word as each other. And so if I watch that, I can tune in just to that. And so then you're hearing words as individual things. It's very weird. You probably couldn't repeat the conversation or notice anything else, but you're just focused on that. Or if we get interested in, uh, which we have been in, on conversational uses of the face, then you just look at the face. And you, that's really hard because there's all these tiny movements of the eyebrows and squinting the eyes and smiling, and they're only a fraction of a second long. But if you focus just on that you can see things. So it's really a matter of choosing a focus. And a lot of it is just getting the garbage out of the way and not worrying about what somebody's thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. And just say, they're doing things, and they're doing things the other person can see or hear. Mm -hmm. So that's, if you have that rule, then you see the interaction. Mm -hmm. I think the, well, there's a couple problems. One is that 
it's easier to look at individuals than to look at the space between people. So that's the problem. Is that, and we also hear more about what's going on in people. We're in a world that talks about what people think and feel and mm. what their brains are like and all that sort of new, new for, <laughs> so I didn't say that, but it's the new phrenology of the brain and the areas that things do. You get that out of the way and say, I'm just going to look at what somebody's doing in relation to the other person. Mm. And it has to be something that the other person would perceive and see and could influence them. So it's not body language, which is me making up things as an expert. And once you do that, it's right there. Mm. And people can see it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's really a matter of getting the other stuff out of the way. I love getting the other stuff out of the way. <laughs> This is what I so much realize on our journey, for mm. instance. We had discussions when we had a hard time with Bibiana and then just starting to look at the interactions mm. well, opened up a whole new world of possibilities. Yeah. We suddenly realized, oh, when are the interactions differently? It's like it, it was so easy to break down things and yeah. the level of yeah. what we can do something different, mm-hmm. yeah. and which leads to a whole new idea yeah. of, of the in-between. And just by yeah. having this idea, all of a sudden the whole environment changed because yeah. we yeah. had different kind of interactions. Yeah, rather than attributing it to some characteristic of you mm. or a baby. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, we did the microanalysis course that your colleagues offered (laughs) and uh, it was really opening up a whole new world and I think once you see it you cannot not see it anymore (laughs) just just so clear how maybe not how but what is there and then how how you can Mm. see that and the reciprocity the interaction kind of influence in communication and that's such for us it was Mm -hmm. such really moment that changed our way of not only Mm -hmm. talking to each other but also of teaching Mm -hmm. solution focus it's interesting what you say makes me the two of you saying makes me think that there are two things that you have to do one is to see interaction and not go into people's heads but the other is the time scale because you can watch interaction and i do in the airport lounges and end up standing in a lineup somewhere i can always do that but with Having a program like Elan, the software, is like being given a microscope or a telescope. And so you then you not only look at the interaction, but you see how precise and fast it is mm-hmm. and how there are things going on that are what fascinates me. That what goes on is regularly less than simple reaction time. Mm-hmm. It's faster than you could pull your finger away from a stove or something, which is supposed to be the limit. Mm-hmm. But it's faster than that. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is being able to see it in slow motion. We had more primitive systems of just rewinding a video a lot and wearing out the tape, and then we had another program. But once Elam, which was developed by linguists and for linguists, then you can easily see. You know, it's, it's much more convenient. And you can go to our resource section and find the link to Elam. Mm-hmm and more information about that. Yeah, good. Everybody sell it. It's free. Yeah. <laughs> the Max Planck and the German government provide it free. <laughs> Let's look at one thing under the microscope. Um, you and your colleagues developed the idea of how grounding works, mm-hmm. and now you, you say you're one step further with calibration. And this is really kind of in, you said, within five, every five seconds is yeah. kind of happening. Yeah. So what, what is happening there and how could that be important for one of the everyday conversation, but also mm-hmm. solution focus? 
And, and maybe you could also just briefly describe what grounding is yeah, to our yeah, listeners. Yeah. yeah, well, to confuse everybody who may have heard it, we changed the word grounding to calibration because uh, grounding was from Herb Clark, a good friend and colleague at Stanford. But our theory began to depart from his quite a bit. And so they wouldn't be confused or we wouldn't be co-opting his theory. We changed the term. And we like calibration. It's like calibrating your watches. It's people getting, now we've got our watches synchronized and we can go off as the spies or agents or whatever we are. So it had a kind of dramatic appeal to us. What we're looking at is when, in an ordinary conversation, look at what one person said, which may not be a whole sentence or a whole utterance. It may be, it's often less than that, a phrase. And then look for when the other person reacts, often with a nod or mm-hmm or yeah, or repeating a word. And then when the first person, the original speaker, responds, and we say, and some, some linguists said this before but not studied it, that the first reaction by the addressee, the listener, tells the speaker that the person understood it, which we need to know. But the third reaction tells the addressee that they were right, mm -hmm. because if, if I just look confused when I've said something and you've said something else and I just look confused and it's pretty clear getting feedback that you didn't really get it right. And so that when I describe it that way, it's in slow motion. And we looked with my amazing colleagues, Jennifer Gerwing and Sarah Healing, who developed this, finding every bit and every bit of what somebody says, stopping the minute the other person reacts and looking at what they've done, and then stopping that minute and end seeing what the first person said. And our first hypothesis is those sequences are going on all the time in conversation. That's a big risk because it's a big bet. And we looked at, or they mostly looked at, I think, 1,200, something like 1,200 sequences in some getting acquainted conversations. And 97% had the three steps, Wow, which was just amazing. Um, and, and they're very uh, sophisticated. Sophisticated. One of the things that was really surprising, the average length of time that a step took was five seconds. Mm -hmm. And it was closely around that. So we're doing that every five seconds, which you have. It's just unbelievable. So kind of every five seconds we calibrate or we people calibrate. talk to each other, calibrate, yep. and yep. they can... Yeah, can only go on or can go on in a better way if, if that happens. Right. And, you know, we had the option of people could have what we called an alert, like this isn't working. But it's, it's amazing how little that mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. And you can see, to get to the point what it means, there's a bridge, which is often the third step was, for example, this, a speaker had said, well, the dog did this, and you say, oh, how interesting. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> and I say, yeah, It did that. So I've switched to mm -hmm. a pronoun which only makes sense if you understood mm -hmm. what I meant. Or people make shorter phrases. So the, the calibration is really subtle and very efficient. Because if I say something and you show you, I ask a question, you show me understood it by answering, then you've introduced new information mm -hmm. too. So they overlap. It's incredibly efficient. Mm -hmm. But the reason we're interested in is we want to know what is the basic way people build a conversation mm -hmm. There's a sense in which this is the most important project I've done. I don't think the world will think so because it's really technical, but I think it's very important. And working with the therapist, working with Peter DeYoung especially and Sarah Smock-Jordan, they think, and I agree, it's the basis of co-construction. A lot of people have talked about co-construction theoretically. 
you look at those books, there's almost not an example of dialogue in them. And we said, if it's, I, I guess I think of co-construction as a really literal thing, like they're building something, like carpenters. And so they're, and they're, they're stacking bricks together or whatever a good metaphor is. So I think we're seeing co-construction on the ground. Mm. And uh, uh, Peter and Sarah and Jennifer and the other Sarah are looking now at therapy, solution-focused therapy tapes. Mm. I think they're looking at miracle questioning right away, and they're doing a calibration analysis to see how there's that change and coming to understand the same things and the information that the therapist seeks and the information that the, the client provides. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, this is such an important thing because when we talk about this calibration, mm -hmm. then in solution focus, we constantly calibrate towards a preferred future. We constantly yeah. Yeah. calibrate yeah. towards what people want in their lives. Mm -hmm. We constantly calibrate towards what works yeah. in their lives, towards yeah. signs of progress. Mm -hmm. yeah. And being aware of it is so important mm -hmm. because this shows how yeah. much we, well, as you say, yeah. co-construct things and yeah. you can show it in your videotapes uh, yeah. under yeah. the microscope what's happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this yeah. is just mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mentioned a, uh, a contrast tape, which was a CBT tape published by the American Psychological Association, where the woman comes in with one problem and gets treated for a different one. So the question, how did that happen? Because she's agreed to it, but it slowly happened through these little step-by-step -step thing that, hmm. you know. And it gives also a lot of hope. People must learn about that mm -hmm. because even when they go and search help somewhere or mm -hmm. in, also in, in daily interactions, so mm -hmm. it actually doesn't matter that much, but especially when you go and search help that you can also bring your part in by not yeah. agreeing by being careful this is yeah. what i so mm -hmm. much realize yeah. in conversations yeah. that i'm more and more careful mm -hmm. about concepts i agree to mm -hmm. that if, if people introduce concepts and usually i'm i'm, I'm a very social person so <laughs> i love to be in harmony with people yeah. and i love yeah. to yeah. have good conversations yeah. and mm -hmm. i love to have like this yes mm -hmm. setting mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time here, it's so helpful to be aware to what I say, mm -hmm. to what I commit, to mm -hmm. what I calibrate. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, it's, it's like a lot of, of skills that we have. You can't think about it while it's happening. You know, if you're a therapist thinking about what's happening at five seconds, you're a failure probably. Mm -hmm. Or socially, if I do it out in life, I'm totally a social failure. Uh, so I think you have to do what's, what you're saying is it's natural. It's what people do unless they've been taught to do something else. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. the important thing. It's not very successful to think about it while doing. Might be successful to think about it before mm -hmm. and then and then you might see yourself doing something different. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if you decide to really look for all the resources you have, the person is saying, then you'll probably nod at different times and if you are yeah, uh, looking yeah. for all the problems that you hear. We are also sure that this your work is and will and should change the world. <laughs> I like that. It, yeah, it will for sure. You said in the beginning, I like to see it and here you can really see it and we go away from all those kind of, say, made up stuff, <laughs> inner things or wh wherever this is happening, mm. you cannot see most things that communication theorists say, yeah. but here you can really see it. And, and I mm. believe that grounding and um, you work on, well, on questions, for example, and on mm. co-construction, mm. the, the way we understand it too, mm. has the potential to change the world. Because if, mm -hmm. if people look at communication or at interaction mm. in a way like this, they will 
well, have just mm -hmm. easier and better life because it's mm -hmm. right there. You do it naturally. Yeah. You can yeah. already do it. And there is nothing mystic about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do this stuff and I just get to look at all the details and I don't have to do it professionally, right? But maybe it's a lot like I have a friend who was, who was a concert pianist and she didn't get that way and just sit down and play the stuff, right? It came through a lot of practice and also a lot of hearing other people do it. Now, I'm not saying you should practice calibration sequences, but I think watching tapes of other people and watching how they work is a really good way. And then and the first thing you recognize is that we're doing it all the time. So just relax and do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes say I should charge a really huge amount of money to teach communication, so like 10000 for a day or mm. something. But I go in and say, just be natural and yeah. walk out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be natural and well, we as, as passionate solution-focused mm. practitioners or embracing it even in our life also think that it's just what, what Dominic says. It's also about taking decisions on where to focus. Yep. Mm. And just what mm. you say with your friend who is a pianist, it's, mm. it's the same with solution focus. Yeah. We have the mm -hmm. one sign, yeah. train your focus, and it's yeah. training. Yeah. And I think mm. we can train this mm -hmm. calibration and what we calibrate by mm -hmm. As you mm -hmm. said, either watching tapes or just reflecting what we did right mm -hmm. now. I so often see that I get a question from someone and then I just answer the question. And afterwards I realize, whoa, okay, by answering this question, I made it possible. Yeah. But this yeah. question mm -hmm. had like some concepts I wouldn't agree in yeah. a normal yeah. conversation, yeah. but it was so fast. But mm -hmm. still... I realized it at least afterwards, mm -hmm. which makes it more helpful for the future to realize it hopefully earlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. To understand what Elfie just said, you can also go back to our podcast about the art of asking great solution-focused questions. There we described how with a question you open up an answer spectrum and bring in a concept. And with the answer of the person who brings in the content, something new is co-constructed or co-created and uh, how conversation or yeah, our solution focused conversations go on like that. So change is happening all the time. <laughs> it's about 50 years ago now that yep. you wrote Pragmatics with mm -hmm. Paul Watzlawick and Dundee Jackson. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And what happened ever since? So what changed for you, you yeah. wrote there? Mostly things change with time and you know that more as you get older. But the main thing was starting to do research. When I left the, the MRI and went to graduate school, because I, I didn't have a graduate degree when I was there, it was my goal to become a research psychologist, not a therapist. And so I've done that for 40 or 50 decades of my life. And that changes things. If it didn't, we'd really be worried. <laughs> if, yeah. if, every, if I've been looking at data for that long and I found exactly what we said was happening at Pragmatics, I'd be cheating. <laughs> it's this funny thing that we take a book and just take it for granted because yeah. it's written in this yeah. book. It's like it's now yeah. it's in yeah. stone forever yeah. and nothing changed yeah. with the author. So yeah. It's not the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we are very happy to have you here yeah. and ask yeah. you today. I mean, I, mean, I was that. thinking about a way to explain this 
is because I mean, the book has been great for me, you know, and it's in eight languages and still people reading it and citing it. And I'm really pleased because there's a perspective in there that I want them to see. But it's as if at about the same time, a little before, I was doing very early computer programming. And that's what I knew then. If I were doing that now, <laughs> I would be laughed out. It really would be crazy. In 50 years, a lot of things have happened. And so I think that the basic perspective we set out in the first chapter is like my motto, my creed about the mode, what's going on between people is communication. It's not what's in their heads. You look at what for rather than why. There's all these things that mm. I, are absolutely... But that's a broad framework for approaching things. The particular axioms, which as I always point out, were labeled tentative. <laughs> and I didn't think the word axioms was good, and I turned out I was right because it sounds so formal. But they were hypotheses. And some have worked pretty well. Others do not. For example, the, there's a difference between two things we said in the first axiom. All behavior is communication, and one cannot not communicate. Those are different statements, different logically. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about this in, in an article that the all behaviors communication is a universal statement. One cannot not communicate is a very specific statement. And I think that's true. You just have to be in an elevator with people and you think, yeah, we, can, we communicate something. But the all behaviors communication just meant a lot of everybody reading body language and being an expert on people and other offensive things. So there's some logical things changed like that. We were also wrong about nonverbal communication being a separate channel. I think that took a long time to learn and not is it. But a whole lot of other things are, are right. So I just haven't felt tied by them. Mm -hmm. It's done. I wrote it. I know it'll change. And now I'm going to find out what's going on now that we have better technology and I have different training. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But some people are offended if I don't <laughs> still believe in pragmatics. And it's um, the book I'm writing now, which is kind of the closing parentheses of that work. Not I'll go on, but it's kind of it's about the program of research for these decades mm. and what they add up to. And it's I have to admit, its working title in all my files has been "Daughter of Pragmatics." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and daughters don't always agree with their parents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we see that with BB too, that she doesn't always agree with us. <laughs> so, yeah. so you have dedicated your, well, a huge part of your life to this topic and to studying face-to-face -face dialogue. So what was the overall goal for you of this research that you did? Early on, it was just to be able to study it experimentally without destroying it, because there weren't people tended to take dialogue apart or do different kinds of qualitative work, which I admire, but I, I like experimentation. So I spent quite a bit of time get, working up the courage to put two people naturally interacting in a lab together, <laughs> because I was told in my do doctoral orals, you can't do that, it won't work. But it does. So that was part of it was methodological mm. and, uh, and developing methods and a different approach, being inductive, not going to the literature, looking at data. But the main goal is settled down to be what is unique about face-to-face -face dialogue. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of other ways we communicate. The most basic, everybody agrees, the most fundamental, the original is face-to-face -face dialogue. So how is it different? And since I'm such a fan, why is it so superior <laughs> to mm -hmm. other forms of language use? So I've 
pursued that. That's the framework that all the studies are done. So one of the features that's unique about dialogue is the incredible level of reciprocities mm-hmm. that, that we can respond not just instantly, but overlapping with each other, that there isn't any other format that mm-hmm. is that fast where you can even talk at the same time and understand each other. So it's an incredible level of speed, but not just speed like talking fast. It's speed of information back from the other person. So, you know, that five seconds I mentioned, people can do that easily, and they're weaving together a version of events in that speed. So it's the reciprocity that I I think is, is important and unique to dialogue. And the other is that we have available to us not only audible but visible linguistic acts, not body language, but we use three, gestures, gaze, and facial gestures. Hand gestures, facial gestures, and gaze are the three we've studied, and those are operating all the time, and they're one of the things that makes it fast and reciprocal, and often they're managing the conversation. So if you look at, we have a hypothetical matrix someplace that says one axis is reciprocity and the other is the availability of different actions. Face-to-face dialogue is the only one that has both of those, mm-hmm. that you have a wider set of resources because they're visible as well as audible, co-speech gestures they're called, and you have the highest level of reciprocity. And so it's that framework we've been trying to fill in. Mm-hmm. And you showed with your um, research that facial gestures or hand gestures really go... Yeah. One in one with what we say and then yeah. the and yeah. microseconds. Yeah, no, it's be, amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The face is, what has it got, 40, 50 muscle groups, and it's really fast. So people can raise their eyebrows to stress one word or one syllable, yeah. or they can make a very quick smile to show something's ironic. Or what's funny, we showed people excerpts from Shrek 2 and have them tell it back. Mm. And people actually imitate the characters. You know, <laughs> so they'll do two seconds of donkey with their face <laughs> and talk like donkey. And it just makes it so mm. interesting. But the way they do it, I can demonstrate hand gestures pretty well. I can't demonstrate faces. They're just too fast to do and make it look natural. Mm. But we do it all the time. So the whole body talks or whole bodies yeah. talk to each other. Yeah, well, no, I know I would limit that and say it's just, that's the problem with it. It's really hand gestures, facial gestures and gaze. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that we mirror postures or, oh, the worst one is crossed arms. <laughs> There were two studies in the late 60s about that that got opposite results. And we've just done a literature review. Everybody still cites it. Mm. Crossed arms don't mean anything, mm. absolutely anything. Mm. And there's no evidence. Can you repeat that? <laughs> okay. People crossing their arms does not mean mm. hostile or rejecting as it was friendly. Mm. And there's never been any evidence for it. Mm. My theory is that you're either a bit chilly or you spilled something on your blouse at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it means. But there's, it, it's just amazing how it carries on. There's the big weight for studying. I don't even use the word nonverbal because I give that to other people. And there's so much pop communication about that that it's really hard to get through Mm -hmm. and say, no, there's some things that are really linguistic. Mm -hmm. And I like the people who develop the term co-speech gestures Mm -hmm. because it narrows it down just to this group that are tightly related to speech, that is their time with speech. Mm -hmm. And the other ones, we wasted a good two or three years looking for body synchrony, leaning forward, leaning Mm -hmm. back just dead nothing 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 (laughs) and it just isn't there so so reciprocity and 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 more resources uh visible and audible resources or co-speech gestures yeah Yeah. i mean 
obviously words are a key part. They're carrying it, but they're not the only part. Mm -hmm. And this is pretty quite accepted in uh, the group that study these things now, that even linguists are saying hand gestures are part of speech. They're Mm -hmm. linguistic. And I'm working on getting them to say the same thing about facial gestures and gaze. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, Janet, you started studying face-to-face communication in a time when it was not popular at all. No. And you just said that at the beginning, people told you you cannot bring people in the laboratory (laughs) and have them Mm -hmm. a natural conversation. Mm -hmm. And you did it. Yep. So I presume along your way, you as a pioneer in exploring these things and studying these Mm -hmm. things, you might have heard a lot of people saying this is not possible. Mm -hmm. What helped you keep moving? Remember my sticking my fist in the snowbank? (laughs) (laughs) I don't do what other people tell me to do. But I mean, I first of all, I should give credit. There were a lot of other people. There was a period sort of starting in the late 80s where a number of people, Herb Clark especially, and a number of other people, started looking at interaction. And they were all trained as linguists, so it's really hard to move out of that, and showed that it makes a difference. It's some really nice experiments. And then there's just other areas where it's working. It's very interesting that hand gestures seem such an odd thing, but I think of them as like the uh, little kid in the back of the room who's really quiet but turns out to be a leader, because a whole lot of the dyad research now is people are interested in hand gestures. And it doesn't matter that it's hand gestures, it's just that they're getting two people together to interact and looking at the interaction. That's become absolutely normal. So I think that's a big part. But I don't want your overstating how important this is. It was a minority at the time because of psychoanalysis and all that. And it's remained a minority. Social psychology, which is my training, has never done this kind of research. And now we went from the cognitive revolution to the neuroscience revolution so we're getting further and further away but i like that i like being on the edge (laughs) (laughs) and it's a good time to focus more on interaction (laughs) the action in the interaction like we do with the solution focus and Mm -hmm. we do with our podcast so janet if there is one takeaway for our Mm -hmm. listeners Mm -hmm. in all these amazing things Mm -hmm. you're doing what would you say is the one which can make a vital difference Mm -hmm. in their lives observe try to learn to observe what's going on between and shut out what you think is going on in the head or more simply just download elan and look at some video (laughs) <laughs> and look at it second by second, and that'll do it too. <laughs> and that connects well to the challenge of this week. Yeah. Yes, this is something I credit to my colleague, Jennifer Gerwing. She was having trouble explaining this to a group in a seminar and came up with this, and it's good, which is to have people look at a video, so maybe a section of therapy that you have, or if not, then a movie <laughs> that's a well-made movie with good acting. Because you, you have to have it on film because you have to play it. And take two different perspectives entirely. Sort of like you put a filter on a camera and look at it differently with a filter or refocus it, whatever metaphor works. And so look at it first and look at only one person and start thinking hard about what's going on in their mind. 
I almost die when I say those words. It's very hard for me. Anyway, but you, but it's 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 a really good exercise. You think what they're feeling, why they're doing what they're doing, what they're thinking, and so focus completely on them as each of them as individuals. So the therapist wanted to know this, was thinking this, was considering this, and uh, whatever. So intentions, goals, what they are, mind, thought, and emotions, and then take the same video, and you know. Go get a cup of coffee first and take the same video and look only at what's happening between the people. And what you're looking for has to be what somebody does observably, physically, or vocally that the other person would notice and that it was aimed at the other person, that it would affect the other person. So it gets you to what they're saying and doing, not brushing their hair back or something. It has to be something that's part of their interaction and see it, and you can see the same video those two different ways. And if you learn to make the distinction, you're on your way to looking at interaction. And you'll find a video on in our resource section, www.sfontour.com slash simplyfocuspodcast, and just go to this podcast, episode number 10. I very much love this exercise, and I'm so grateful to be with you. I'm, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to spend time with you, also that we had the time the last days, and just to get to yeah. know you better. Yeah. And face just, to face is better. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much, mm-hmm. Janet, for your time, for you, all your precious work you do, and that you still yeah. keep on going with yep. your amazing team. Yeah. And we are looking forward to your book and yes. to all the brilliant things which will come up out of your work. Thank you. Yeah, so this was episode number 10 of our Simply Focus podcast interview with Janet Bavilis. For the people who have not yet gone on our website, go on the website and then you see a few pictures of where we are here. A beautiful property, beautiful house. There's a Newfoundland dog lying next to us and where everything that we have said was recorded. It's really beautiful to be here and spend time with Janet and park in her uh, driveway. (laughs) Please also go to our comment field and comment. Tell us how you experience the challenge, what differences it makes for you if you look at the interaction and share what inspired you with this podcast. So thank you very much for listening and tune in next week for episode number 11. Goodbye. (laughs)